Farming Programme with Araquip Steel Stockholders, Withambrook Industrial Estate Grantham. For all your steel needs, call their friendly experts. We hear a lot about nature-based solutions. What are they and what are the positives? So you've got public funding driving at certain entities, so government change and legislation change driving things like BNG. And we'll soon be saying farewell to one of the longest serving NFU advisors in the country. Best moment, um, hardest nine months of my life, but foot and mouth was probably my best moment in terms of actually just troubleshooting. You know, I class that as a best moment because of sort of enjoyment of enjoying a crisis, if you like. Yes, the NFU's Simon Fisher retires next month. We'll look back on a long and much-respected career. Plus, we've got crop and market reports and prices and some timely agronomy advice. The Week in Agriculture. This is The Farming Programme with Steve Orchard. Hello. After a very mixed bag of weather last week, we'll see what this week has in store at the end of the programme. And don't forget that last week saw the opening of the application windows for farm payments for 2023 from the Rural Payments Agency. They're now open for BPS, Countryside Stewardship and Environmental Stewardship Agreements. All you need to know and to apply on the gov.uk website. And we had a budget last week. Anything for farmers? Well, the pension changes announced may help in planning for succession. The pension lifetime allowance limiting how much you can put into your pot is abolished and the pension annual allowance is increased from £40,000 to £60,000 from April. But there was no change to frozen income tax thresholds. Simon McCann, Chartered Financial Planner at the NFU Mutual, said he welcomed the decision to abolish the limit to how much can be accumulated in pensions over a lifetime as it will help farming families plan for succession but it was disappointing to see the Chancellor leave income tax and child benefit tax thresholds frozen until 2028. With inflation still raging, these stealth taxes will leave many people with less money in their pockets in real terms. And you may remember that we heard from Vince Gillingham a few weeks ago about the initiative Pickups for Peace to get much-needed 4x4s and pickups to Ukraine. I had an email from Vince the other day. Steve, we're finally home after 30 UK farming heroes drove 2,100 kilometres to deliver 22 pickups to Ukraine filled with urgent aid. The brigade helping us move the pickups and aid have assured us it will reach the people in need on the front by last Thursday. Witnessing the journey and the commitment by those who took part was frankly awe-inspiring. Participants ranged in age from 18 to 76. Oscar, a farmer's son from Salisbury, aged 18, who only passed his driving test six months ago, said, My previous longest drive was from Salisbury to Cornwall, and he completed the 2,100 kilometres with a big smile on his face. There's countless stories like this, two of which we'll hear on next week's farming programme. And we're planning two more trips, Steve, at the end of March and the end of April. Sadly, we didn't have anyone from Lincolnshire on this trip, so I would be grateful if the farming programme could help us generate some more local interest. We did have drivers from Nottingham, Suffolk and Yorkshire, so I'm sure Lincolnshire can play a much bigger part next trip. The challenge is there, Lincolnshire. Can we respond? Can we help? If so, email pickupsforpeace at memus, M-E-M-U-S dot com. That's pickupsforpeace at memus dot com or at pickupsforpeace on Twitter. Now, in a few weeks' time, the NFU and East Midlands Farmers will say goodbye to one of their longest-serving advisors. With 40 years of service to the farming community, Simon Fisher will retire next month. I had a long chat with Simon the other day and was surprised to learn that he joined the NFU with no farming background at all. 
No, I'm uh, no, I'm not at all. Um, I'm the son of a group secretary. Um, my father was a group secretary for for many years. Started about 1956, and I came along a couple of years after that. Um, yeah, no, I've I've I'm a degree level geographer. It means I can't get lost in one way systems apparently. But apart from the uh, the main principle is that yeah, I, you know, that, that I was employed. In fact, I'm thinking about it. I've only ever used my degree in a purest sense. Uh, once when I did some things called marginal land appeals up in the northeast um, for about six months where we were helping people to get into the less favoured area up there once Europe had redesignated a, what they call marginal land. Mm. Um, and uh, that was the time I used my knowledge on slopes, soils, geology to argue that this area was less favoured than uh, of another area and uh, came in quite useful. And that was around, and that must have been around the time of um, Live Aid because I can remember driving back across from Whitby after two or three days in places like Robin Hood's Bay. Um, and Live Aid was, it was a Saturday and Live Aid was live on the radio. Just give me a potted history of your NFU career, because what is it, 40 years now? Yep, 40, so 40 years ago, uh, 1st of February 1983, I started as an assistant county secretary up in the, what was then the North Riding and Durham County branch of the NFU and uh, spent my informative six years up there dealing with things like milk quotas and appeals for land designations, uh, national parks, I had two in the area. So quite a big grounding and, and actually what I would say my formative interest in environment, which actually spurs from my geography days as a, as a geography graduate and uh, doing did quite a lot of environmental work on that degree. And you're talking about milk quotas, that's one of numerous crises you must have had across your desk over those 40 years. Yeah, foot and mouth, BSE, salmonella in eggs. That was one of the earlier ones. Several income crises, no, most notable probably, and probably for Lincolnshire, the, the pig industry crisis of the late 90s, um, when you know the whole industry was basically on its knees for a long time. But yeah, we've been through that. And, and more recently, I've dealt with, I mean, back in 2019, uh, we had major flooding in the county with five breaches of flood defences and places like Wainfleet and Barlingsoe and the Ancombe area underwater. So, yeah, various different crises in the industry. And in fact, I've always said that crises are the bits that actually get me up in the morning. It's uh, the, the bit that stimulates the, uh, the juices when you, first, uh, when you first get into work. And if you've got a crisis on there, I've always felt that I was performing better in crises than I were in anything else. <laughs> and you must have seen a huge amount of change over those years as well. And I'm thinking back to common agricultural policy and then on to BPS mm. and SFI and lots of other different initials along the way. We used to have a book in the NSU for anacronyms because even the staff had a job keeping up with it. I, I think I dealt with probably four cat reforms. Uh, and more recently, Brexit. We've had a, obviously had a hand in that as well. So it's quite interesting. We've got this um, move at the current time into regenerative farming. I'm by no means a purist when it comes to that sort of philosophy, but I can see lots of uh, different aspects of regeneration being practiced across um, not only Lincolnshire, but the whole of the East Midlands. And there's hundreds of thousands of acres probably being farmed in a much more regenerative way than they were in the past. So changes in the way people are farming, uh, much more precision farming these days, much more attention to detail. Data, data is a huge thing now in the industry, They're a very powerful tool for, from a management point of view. I came in to the NSU in the days of, the very early days of things called environmentally sensitive areas. So the places like the Pennine Dales and, and you know, some of the jewels in our crown um, were all getting designated and the farmers were getting help in those areas towards the sort of agri-environment aspect. But right on through Europe's agri-schemes, 
Uh, and now, of course, we've got the Environmental Land Management Scheme, the ELMS. Where are we six, six years into co-design and development? We still haven't got a full scheme, but uh, it's getting there. And uh, you know, it's something that uh, we've been pushing quite hard for in terms of getting it right for farmers and the, and the country as a whole. The development in farming is one thing, but you must have seen a lot of developments in individual farms. And you must be on second and third generations with some of them. Well, I'm certainly on second generations of a lot of them. I, in, in terms of, well, I've been in the East Midlands since uh, 1989. So people who I um, dealt with, well, I'll say people who I met those days, people on the county executives and various different boards and committees. Um, yeah, I'm, I now deal with the sons and daughters of dad and mum. <laughs> um, so, yeah, it is, it is quite, uh, it's quite interesting to see... Uh, See what the next generation looks like and how they've come through. And Lincolnshire is a fantastic county of what I call very good agri-professional farmers, really good businessmen, really know what they're doing, keep up with the times and, and all the developments that are, that are happening in the industry. It's refreshing to see those sons and daughters coming through with, with more or less the same sort of mindset, maybe a bit more up to date than maybe dad or, or mother had, pulling the industry through to the next generation and, and some of them doing it extremely well. Absolutely. Best and worst moment then of those 40 years. Can you can you come up with one of each? Uh, blimey, best moment. Um, it was the hardest nine months of my life, but foot and mouth was probably my best moment in terms of actually just troubleshooting. I mean, we thankfully didn't see foot and mouth in the county as such, uh, but we certainly had a few scares, but, but I was troubleshooting across the whole of the region at that stage, and yet we had our problems um, and thankfully, though, it wasn't as, as serious as it was elsewhere. Um, and that, that actually, you know, I class that as a best moment because of sort of enjoyment of enjoying a crisis, if you like. Worst moment, what we're seeing now is for, for several years now, certainly since um, we came out of Europe and Brexit happened, is that farming is under this continuous veil of uncertainty that dominates all of our lives. Very little of it is as straightforward as it used to be. OK, I accept it's probably as complicated in the old days as it is now. But actually, I think there's, there's a lot more worry now and, and the challenges in the industry are huge at the moment. I don't go out on a high when I think of that, but I do go out confident that the industry, particularly Lincolnshire with its abilities and its resilience, can actually come through on that basis. And what about plans for Simon post-retirement? What have you got uh, on the plan, agenda? Plans, plans for the future. Um, firstly, my wife's made a claim on me for the refurbishment of the kitchen, um, which we haven't done since we moved into the house some time ago. But yeah, no, I'm actually going to re- reinvigorate some of the hobbies that I haven't really had a chance to follow over the last few years. I've always had a fascination for fossils and paleontology. I'm joining the uh, Peterborough Geology and Paleontology Group basically because they go on good field trips all over the place. Maybe uh, a bit of involvement with amateur dramatics, not on the stage itself, but behind the scenes of the backstage people. So, yeah, different things which I haven't really had a chance because I've been a bit busy in the NFU to uh, pursue with any seriousness. Just a chance to maybe do that and enjoy life a bit better. I won't sort of embarrass you too much, but we've had various comments and they all paint a very very positive picture of your dedication to your your job and the farming industry your attention to detail your knowledge of the patch you could summarize a complex government guidelines document into key facts in no time and produce an idiot proof working sheet well that's no mean achievement in itself a policy geek and a lover of good food and decent beer he will be sorely missed 
Yeah, I I I agree with the foodie bit. I'm uh, I'm I'm a, I'm a keen cook, and actually been on courses. I've been on one of Rick Stein's courses in Padstow. Great fun, like learning how to do things new. But actually, I suppose the fascination started with my working for the NFU, where I was doing work where food producers, particularly farm shops and those sorts of things, were all developing in the 80s. Um, and I saw it coming through. You know, this huge pride in terms of the produce we've got. Uh, and also the sort of pinnacles of that, so Stilton cheese and Lincolnshire sausages and all those different things which, you know, provide the very best of products that the farming industry is uh, is responsible for. Simon, I wish you all the very, very best for the future. Enjoy a long and fulfilling retirement. I indeed intend to. <laughs> Thank you very much, Steve. To our weekly walk through the fields now, reporting on the crops and with some timely agronomy advice, good morning, Sean Sparling. Yeah, morning, Steve. Well, that was a week of weather then. Pretty much everything from Mother Nature, wind, rain, snow, frost, fog, sunshine, all in one day for me on a couple of days last week. And all that meant little or nothing has been done on the land. Left things really sticky after last week's weather and with another inch or so of water, give or take, over the past seven days, then we needed some dry, windy weather to give us hope of cracking on with drilling on anything other than sand or stony heath. March many weathers, it certainly is at the moment. So it leaves land work about where it was this time last week, but crops are definitely starting to move despite all of that because oilseed rape in particular has really shifted. I said last week there would be a very tight window of opportunity for things like picloram, clopyrrolid, etc. And I wasn't wrong, was I? Because if you remember, the cutoff is all to do with the position of the buds within the canopy when it comes to these materials in oilseed rape so if the buds are enclosed then they're fine and as a rule of thumb once those buds start to leave the canopy and rise above that canopy you need to stop because that's when the crop becomes very very sensitive to damage we always used to say that if you look down and can see the buds you're still fine for clopyrrolid but if you tilt your head on its side on canopy level and you can see buds rising up or even just above the canopy, then you're slightly too late. So with that in mind, do speak to your advisor and make sure that recommendations that were left two or even three weeks ago are still safe on these crops. They are moving quickly. Picloram and Arilex in particular need very carefully planning. Light leaf spot has started moving again, but not as fast as it was last week. And with the return of these cooler conditions, that was inevitable, really. But do stay alert. Spot check, of course, you still have access to that, where you can send your leaves away for light leaf spot assessments at ADAS. It's a very disruptive and very costly disease, so you do need to be on top of it. And failing spot check, if you haven't got time for that, then put a few leaves in a polythene bag with a little bit of damp paper and leave it in a warm place, an airing cupboard. Do people still have those? Um, or radiator do people still have those or by the air source heat pump input or whatever even under your armpit for 48 hours and if the light leaf spot is in those leaves it's going to show as those characteristic milky spots now it's particularly relevant if you didn't put a fungicide on last autumn of course but considering that fungicides against light leaf spot only protect the leaves from the spread for about three weeks at best then undoubtedly it's still going to be there in the crop now even if you did spray in the autumn so it's irrelevant whether it was sprayed or not last autumn now if it's out there and you can find it in your fields you need to deal with it especially where 
weather conditions are favorable for its spread as it starts to warm up. I've no sugar beet in the ground, so we move on from sugar beet. Spring barley's though, nicely pricking through from the February drilling. The number and severity of frost would suggest to me that the aphid population, the bird cherry oak, the grain and the rose grain aphids, which are mostly responsible for spreading barley yellow dwarf virus, will have been pretty hard hit thanks to that weather. Now remember, it only takes frost of about minus one and a half to kill these particular species of aphids. It takes down to minus seven, minus eight to kill minus persicae in sugar beet. But we've had plenty of minus ones, minus one and a half. So there may not be a case for applying a pyrethroid this spring. A lot of people used to do it just as it pricked through the ground. And of course, always check the fields and make sure that they're not there. But to be fair, unless you apply pyrethroids pretty much every day for about eight weeks, you can't be sure of controlling aphids anyway in spring barley. So for me, I shall once again play it by ear. And unless they suddenly appear at threshold, I have absolutely no intention of spraying for aphids this spring. If you're told to go and spray, then get your advisor to take you out and show you that they're actually there in the field. There are plenty of little predators and they'll only be too happy to help you out so just look after those predators recreational insecticide use is always a bad idea and much more so in the spring winter beans they're keeping pace plenty of time to get graminicides on these crops yet if you've got bentazone to go on then a sunny warm day is what you want for that to work at its peak t-zeros as well starting to leave those this week i'd guess growth stage 30 is the optimum timing growth stage 30 of course when the distance from the top of the basal node to the tip of the ear becomes a centimeter that is uh, growth stage 30 and that's the beginning of stem extension but assume nothing because the more forward crops are pretty much the same growth stage as some of the more backward ones so you need to get out there cut them open and have a look and it is an important time in growth stage 30 from a safety perspective really particularly when you regard the application and the dose rates of plant growth regulators like chlormaquat chloride trinexpac ethar for example you can't put more than 1.3 liters of a 750 gram chlormaquat chloride on a wheat crop before growth stage 30. You can't put Trinexpac ethyl on before growth stage 30. The risk of crop damage can be quite high and it can remain hidden until harvest as well, that damage. So you are messing with the production of gibberellic acid in the growth points of these plants. So do consider that and do take care. There's no point trying to control septoria these days, by the way, at T0. So use your T0 fungicide timing to correct deficiencies. There's plenty of manganese and magnesium deficiencies showing up out there. Copper and zinc also vital that they're in balance at this time of year. A squirt of strobilurin dropped in with those manganese, magnesium, trace element mixtures can help crops green up because they help them to scavenge nitrogen by chucking out hunger roots. And remember... After such a wet final 10 weeks of 2022, about an inch of rain a week from about the 20th of October onwards, many of these wheat crops and barley crops haven't had to look for water. So their root systems may be quite shallow and those roots are going to need a little bit of manipulation to get them moving. Rolling a good idea too. That's going to help these crops tiller out as well and also firm them into the ground, particularly in those fields where you've got a bit of frost heave. So just stay five to seven days away from 
the T0 if you go and rolling and five to seven days away from frost as well if you do roll either side that is so the last full week of March then here already quarter of the year almost done hopefully March won't go out like a lion having come in like a lamb spring is just over there if you look you can nearly see it but we can assume absolutely nothing it's only two years ago remember that we took 24 frost through April anyway I'm annoying myself now so let's see what the next seven days bring thanks as ever Sean a quick reminder that Lynx FM goes all digital from the 3rd of April all you need to know about making the switch and making sure you can still hear the farming program coming up the farming program with our equipped steel stockholders with Umbrook Industrial Estate Grantham supplying the region for over 40 years Let's talk topsoil. I was at a breakfast seminar hosted by Savills recently where Associate Director Hannah Turner hit us with a frightening claim that topsoil is likely to be gone within 60 years. Hannah, that's quite a thing to say. Yeah, very frightening and really is underpinned by the whole climate change piece, which has become much more media centric over the last sort of three, five years, more pertinent certainly in the last 24 months. In your presentation, Hannah, you were looking for opportunities out of this scary statistic and you came up with three of them. Firstly, biodiversity net gain. What's that? (laughs) Okay, so that is a change that's come about through um, a change to the legislation around the planning frameworks. So any development that takes place, be that a single unit or multiple units, has to leave that development site with a 10% gain in biodiversity than when they started effectively. So a developer would undertake a biodiversity net gain assessment or a biodiversity assessment of that land parcel that they're wishing to develop. They will then identify for their own profit margins, well, how many properties can we put on this piece of land and still deliver the offset of biodiversity on site? And if they can't make that a profitable development, they will look to landowners to help them mitigate their biodiversity loss through the use of occupying land for creating new habitat. Okay, and you talked about the ability to trade these units. How does that work? Yep, so a developer has to, from November this year, 2023, as part of their planning application, they have to front load with the application, the habitat management plan and the way in which they are going to offset and mitigate the biodiversity loss. So effectively, if the developer can't do that on site and they need to go to a third party landowner to help them deliver it, the developer will pay that landowner to deliver that habitat, so to manage and deliver it. Okay, so there are benefits to society, but there there is an income stream uh, available to a, a farmer or a landowner for yep. this. Yep. Okay, moving on then to off-site nutrient neutrality. Explain that one to me as well. Yeah, at the moment, again, linked to development, house building contributes to a, a significant increase in the pollution to our UK water systems, England particularly, simply just because of demographic and density of population. Now, if the developer can't leave a development site as nutrient neutral, i.e. not degrading the water systems, they need to look again like BNG offsite for somebody to help them deliver um, a nutrient solution, be that taking some land out of arable and changing the land use so it doesn't contribute to pollution or um, indeed creating a wetland that helps neutralise the water system. Okay, another area that has been in the news and talked about ad infinitum for the last few years is carbon. And we have voluntary carbon market. This is something relatively new, isn't it? Yeah, so voluntary carbon markets are still quite immature, albeit recognised by the London Stock Exchange most recently. They are immature with a growing appetite for investment into them, but there isn't sort of a steady state, my carbon in this voluntary market is worth X per tonne 
Whereas if you were to enter into a verified carbon scheme, such as the Woodland Carbon Code or the Peatland Carbon Code, there is a bit more validation around the carbon piece and the, the value associated to it. The voluntary carbon market is effectively looking to actually draw investment into that sector in order that investment takes place into businesses that operate a green structure or are actively pursuing climate change for the better. And there is funding available for some of this, isn't it? Some of it private, some of it public. Yep. So you've got public funding driving at certain entities, so government change and legislation change driving things like BNG. But then you've still got public support through SFI, Sustainable Farming Incentive, Countryside Stewardship, Woodland Carbon Code, new planting grants for tree planting. And between the two, effectively, there is opportunity there to, to sort of help move you in the direction to help support the changing world that we're sort of looking looking towards. That's Hannah Turner, Associate Director at Savills. Thank you, Hannah. It's a complicated topic and you can chat to Savills. Contact details on savills.co.uk. Let's get our weekly market reports now, starting with livestock from Louth Livestock Market. Good morning to auctioneer Oliver Chapman. Morning, Steve. Another weekly roundup from here at Louth, starting with the prime cattle, which see heifers the pick of the bunch and selling to a high of 279 pence per kilo for beaver agriculture, JNS Brooks of Strubby and JC Scully. While the pounds per head was topped by beaver agriculture at £1,714. Steers sell to 248 pence per kilo for DG Lawton of Muckton or £1,520 for the University of Lincoln with Lincoln Reds. That wraps the cattle up and onto the sheep. Another similar show of hogs in numbers with a slightly mixed show of weight and meat about. Sees an SQQ of 239.8 pence per kilo with an all in average of 228.25 pence per kilo. Top goes to R.W. Barker of Great Ponton at £126 per head, while A.J. Colson and Sons see highs of £280 per kilo. On to the cool ewes, and it's slightly more about this week after last week's tremendous trade. Sees 123 all in average £120.07 to top for M.E. and M.B. Crowder of Torxy at £173 per head. Finally, just a handful of young ewes and lambs on offer. See highs for D&C Lofthouse of £46 per head for broken mouth ewes. Huge thank you to everyone that's been and supported this week, both buyers and vendors. Tomorrow is Store Cattle Week, with a few entries already about, plenty more expected. Also, another quick reminder that Wednesday the 12th of April sees a complete farm dispersal of machinery and equipment on behalf of Messrs Motley at Covenham. So for all entries, whether it's livestock or machinery, please do not hesitate to contact me. This is Oliver Chapman for Masons and Louth Market, and thank you. And with a look at the grain markets and prices, Openfield's Alice Killam. Morning, Alice. Good morning, Steve. It's going to be difficult to keep this week's report positive, having seen more miserable efforts on the London Liffey market and speaking to multiple farmers who have a solid case of the glooms. Pressured by cheap ample Russian supplies on the global market, coupled with slow demand, new crop futures are still trading at a premium to old crop. The fallout from the SVB bank collapse continue to play on markets, with the announcement that HSBC have purchased the UK arm of the bank for a token whole £1. Midweek saw a firming pound, which was the overriding reason for a negative outlook for the UK market, even while the US and French wheat futures bounced. This interestingly wasn't budget related, but instead an issue with the strength of the euro as bank shares lost ground in Europe. This could potentially help wheat as ag commodities might be seen as a safe haven to invest in. Only time will tell. At the time of recording, there is no official news yet, but it is well rumoured that Ukraine have agreed to the shorter 60-day, not 120-day grain extension for the corridor to continue. 
Many believe this has already been priced into markets. Interesting to read this week that neighbouring countries to Ukraine are now complaining about the cheap flow of grain affecting their own farmers' values, to the extent of which, and I struggle to get my head around this one, that the Polish authorities have decided to compensate their farmers for the losses caused by the significant volume of Ukrainian grain exports, so they will pay them subsidies for the sold grain, both wheat and corn. Argentinian weather remains a watch point too this week, as the country continues to feel the impact of the severe drought they have been experiencing. While harvest hasn't yet begun for soybeans, it's thought that farmers are reluctant to sell their stored crops due to fears that a poor harvest will lead them to run out of reserves. Rapeseed has taken another kicking following down Matif, which has closed lower for eight sessions in a row to its lowest point since June 2021. This is a combination of currency, fund selling of US beans, which were long, the opposite of wheat, and crude oil having a very bad week with the bank collapse of last week, which could potentially have a knock-on effect. There are also signs that there is ample rapeseed supplies in Europe, which are also weighing on the market. The barley market in general is once again devoid of any real fresh news. Feed barley is still struggling to find any interest within the domestic market for old crop. The export market isn't a great deal better, but there is still stock out there, with interest coming through slowly from over the water. Getting decent bids is the key here. New crop offers are not being taken up over demand worries going forward. On the malting side, domestic supply once again is a struggle. Filling in shorts is now the topic of conversation. The malting premium is remaining relatively attractive at around £30-35. Prices for this week, feed week, focusing mainly on demand May onwards now, but please call for spot offers. May 202 to 210, August 205 to 213, November 210 to 215, September 24, circa 195, with milling wheat premiums still holding at around £60 plus, depending on location. Feed barley, May 175 to 185, and June 185 to 195. All seed rape is circa 400, but it's changing daily, so please call for firm values. Have a great week, everyone. Thanks to Alice and Oliver. Back next week. The Farming Programme. Five-day forecast. Quite a calm start to the week. A little bit of drizzle possible with highs between 8 and 10 Celsius and staying that way all week. Dry with a southwesterly breeze for Monday. There's rain on the way from Tuesday and staying with us for most of the rest of the week. The wind stays from the southwest, picking up in midweek to gust in the mid-30s MPH, but calming again by Friday. Finally, don't forget to make sure you're listening on DAB Radio, the free Lynx FM app or smart speaker ahead of Lynx FM going all digital from the 3rd of April. If you already listen that way, online or to the podcast, there's no changes. Just if you listen on 102.2 FM. If you need any advice and help, visit linksfm.co.uk and scroll down to the box how to listen. Well, that's it for this time. I'm Steve Orchard. Until next week, have a great week. Oh, and happy Mother's Day. The Farming Programme with Araquip Steel Stockholders with Embrook Industrial Estate Grantham. BSI ISO 9001 accredited.